Before we start, I have a quick word from this episode's sponsor. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas invites artists to apply for the Fall 2024 Masters of Fine Arts program in art. UNLV's three-year fully funded program with an emphasis on creative practice offers 24-hour access to private studios, graduate assistantship funding, and opportunities to engage with a dynamic roster of visiting artists, all within the unique context of Las Vegas. We welcome artists from diverse backgrounds who want to participate in the dialogues within contemporary art and culture through art making and exhibition to apply by February 1st, 2024. Visit unlv.edu/art to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Winter is upon us. Classes are almost over for me, and I'm looking forward to the holiday season. For this week, I had a wonderful chat with Eddie King, an interdisciplinary artist working in various modes such as installation, sculpture, textiles, painting, drawing, video, sound, and performance. Born in Japan and growing up in Las Vegas, Eddie fell into her art career while attending the University of Las Vegas where she received a concentration in studio art and art history before completing her MFA at Hunter College in 2018. Eddie and I had a ton of overlap within our art circles, and it was great to learn more about her and her work. We discussed finding and creating art communities in affordable spaces, holding Zen in Hot Cheetos, having Beyonce as Hunter College's neighbor, and secret paintings. As always, stay safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. I have been listening a lot to seeing podcasts. And really? So many friends. There's so many friends, especially recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the community in Las Vegas is like, it's tight and it, we all know each other in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. But, I appreciate you listening. Oh, I love it. But <laughs> it's great. It makes me feel closer to people I haven't you know, talked to in a while, but I still feel like I'm connected some way. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I was, you know, I was excited to talk to you. I was looking over your work and uh, I, I felt I had a feeling we also had a lot of different connections because um, you, you're in New York, at least. And I feel like I, I know some people in New York. But yeah, so um, so Eddie, I was trying to. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about your, I guess, your history. And if I understand it correctly, your your name is Japanese. So I assume you're parents are both Japanese or one of them is? Yes, that is true. Um, so I was born in Japan. Uh, my dad's actually still in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's Japanese. And then my mom is actually Filipino. So oh. I'm a fusion. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I lived here in the States since I was seven years old. Seven years old. Okay. And then when you moved, it was just you and your mom or? So um, essentially I had moved a lot back and forth from the States 
I, you know, I lived in Japan. I had lived in the Philippines for a little bit. I did live in the States a few times. I think when I was two, my sister was born okay. in Arizona. Arizona. Wow. She's still a citizen. I'm not. Um, oh, you're still? Oh, okay. Wow. Mm-mm. I'm a permanent resident. But yeah, when I moved here, you know, it was a big change for me, but there was a lot of moving, but essentially it was still pretty jarring to, you know, move out of Japan. My dad uh, did live in the U.S. maybe when I was two, had tried, they he had worked here, but essentially my mom brought us to the States. We lived with our grandparents and then eventually we moved out of my grandparents. They lived right next door to us. And then we bought, yeah, we grew up, you know, with my grandparents. And my mom raising us. So in this point, Arizona or Las Vegas? Oh, Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So your sister's born in Arizona, but yeah, she was born in Arizona, but we did go back overseas for a while. And then I guess this was the most challenging thing is when I moved to the States, I essentially spoke English, Tagalog, and Japanese. And then I fused it together, <laughs> um, which was really difficult for other people to understand me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and um, I was in first grade. Essentially, I took an English ESL class, which yeah. is like English as a second language. Yeah, yeah. And uh, figured myself out, but I think that definitely made it challenging for me growing up at first. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could speak fluently Japanese and Tagalog still. I can understand. Yeah. Actually, I did live in Japan for a residency in 2017 for like three months. I saw that, yeah. And that did help. And I also lived in Japan right before I went to grad school. So once I was in the deep countryside where my dad is, I did have to activate, you know, a little parts of my brain where, you know, Japanese was my first language. Uh, my mom still speaks fluently. So that, I, you know, I've been surrounded by Japanese language and Tagalog. Yeah, yeah. So I can sort of like eavesdrop. Yeah. But I can't exactly speak in conversation. All the time. I'm like that with Cantonese. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I guess my first language was, was Cantonese. And then once I started going to school and my brother and sister started going to school, we started speaking English among ourselves. And then we all lost the ability to speak Cantonese. Do you speak any other languages or just English? And good old, good old English. <laughs> right now I'm um, learning Mandarin. So I've, okay. I've been learning it since I've been here. I've been here since 2019. But learning a language is hard. So it takes a while. Well, what part of China are you in right now? Right now I'm in Guangzhou, which is like the biggest uh, city in the southern part of China. Yeah. Are there a lot of English speakers? No, no. But the reason, the reason is I'm, I guess I've been slower to learn it is because when I first came here, it was for a teaching job that was teaching in English. I was teaching art at oh, a university, right. but like my, my daily interactions were English. And then right now I'm pursuing a PhD and the mode of teaching is English as well. So... I don't have to use it as much. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad you're still picking up on it and you get to have some time to, you know, kind of digest and process language and culture. Yeah. I mean, I have to take classes. I am, I'm actively taking classes since. So it's okay. I can I can get around conversationally and uh, I'm better than most foreigners who stay here. <laughs> it's still, yeah, it's, it's like so worse than the kindergartners, but yeah. I kind of like that childlike view of language, like when you go to a foreign place and sort of pick up on a new language or like a language that you're familiar with. Yeah. When I went to Japan, I think um, one, there was sort of a an understanding. So I went with my partner who's, you know, who is American. And when he spoke Japanese, people were really excited. Oh, he they knows were, like, Japanese. So proud. 
No, only the, oh. the parts that you <laughs> okay. to get through uh, to get by. Um, but yeah. I, I know more, of course, and I can kind of get us around. Yeah. But I can feel the disappointment because it wasn't as like fluent yeah. as they think I should be. Yeah. And especially that I am Japanese and I still yeah. carry the citizenship. There's sort of a different degree. But I would look at the Japanese language and hear things or like understand things in a maybe like philosophical way or mm. maybe even just by uh, hearing uh, like similarities. Like I remember Kauai and kawaii mm -hmm. so one is scary one is cute mm -hmm. and i was like oh that's why like these things that are opposite sort of coexist in the same plane and they're like mm -hmm. <laughs> that you know chigao means different but they're like ah chigao chigao yeah but there is something that i started recognizing embedded in the language not only for like you know and not in the like dichotomies but i guess I would hear like Buddhism sort of embedded in some of the language. I understood concepts much more, but yeah. it's so normalized there. But I found it so fascinating yeah. um, that I think there's something really fun about language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because like, I think as you're kind of mentioning, it's not just language and the linguistic part, but the sort of cultural aspects that are embedded in the language as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, is, what, do, what do your parents do? Um, so both of my parents are work, you know, they started off as creatives. So my mom, she studied architecture, oh, Okay. Um, but now she's in business and finance. Okay. And then my dad, he's a little bit of what my mom calls like a free spirit. Um, he was into art, you know, he's dabbled in poetry and painting and drawing graphic design, illustration. He even had a, what do you call it? Like a mosaic, a glass, mosaic glass uh, business in Japan, which is really odd. Um, in Japan, it's not part of the architecture, but he, you know, he kind of got into that for a little bit. He does carpentry, just all sorts of stuff. He's really into, you know, being um, hands-on. Yeah. But now he's in the countryside of Japan. He moved out from the city. We used to live in Hiroshima. So when he moved to the countryside, it was really for the water. And he's essentially a healer. He's a chiropractor or he also does Reiki. Okay. Um, and he does these house visits of, you know, people who are physically have physical ailments. And yeah, he's kind of a special person. And But my mom had always saw him and, you know, kind of looked at me and so, sort of saw my creative pursuit as like, oh, that's why you're an artist, you yeah. know, because of my dad. But I've been thinking a lot. It's, you know, I think it was the last like five years it illuminated that it was my mom really? that had been such a big influence on me. Yeah, because she did raise me. I mean, my dad was present in different ways, but it was my mom who, um, I mean, she does have background in architecture, but overall she's just a really good drafts person, just great, highly skilled at drawing. Yeah, And I think even though she had to raise us and figure out like how to, she always had multiple jobs and, yeah. um, you know, that's why we like live so close to my grandparents. So that way we had that support, but essentially she had these projects, like, you know, I was thinking about these two events in my life, but it was essentially when I was in first grade, my first year in America mm -hmm. and, um, the, the U S educational system. And essentially what happened was there was a, like a arts and crafts project mm -hmm. and they had asked us to make an object that was related to our culture or our background. And my mom, she helped me, she helped me like quote, 
because she helped me make this like full scale model of this <laughs> a fancy pagoda. Okay. But it was made of cardboard and popsicle sticks and really nice red origami paper that was like patterned with like a kimono pattern. Yeah. But it was it was this beautiful thing and she transformed these like very regular uh, materials. But when I brought it to school, they automatically knew it wasn't me. Did she get in trouble? It just was so sophisticated. <laughs> no, I got rewarded. Um, <laughs> yeah. they so when in doubt, like <laughs> ask your mom <laughs> that the message. Yes. She was always there. Uh, yeah. No, she is. She's a great supporter, but it did get exhibited. That was my first art show. It got exhibited in a library all year. Uh, we ended up taking it home eventually because we did move schools. And mm. I don't know where it's at now, but for a long time in my childhood home, it was with the Japanese collectibles that we have displayed in our home. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a special thing that I used to be like, I did this, but I, I, I knew it was my mother. So I'm like, no, mom made this, but. She, you know, those were like little things she would do. And she actually painted this, like these amazing uh, murals for me and my sister in our first bedroom that we, like uh, me and my sister grew up sharing rooms. But eventually when we first moved out, my mom was like, what kind of themes do you want in your room? And, and, you know, we wanted to go all out, but she was just like still very thoughtful with, you know, how we spend our money and how we can like yeah. uh, make the most of what we had. And uh, she first, she hand drew the themes. So my sister had Pocahontas theme. Okay. And then I had under the sea or like a seascape theme. I was underwater. With like sharks and whales and <laughs> dolphins, dolphins for sure. Dolphins. Yeah mermaids all all the under the sea uh, mm. mythologies but she liked to do things by hand like she would crochet us sweaters or what you know all these types of things but i think realizing you know she never gave herself credit that way but i i realized i was like no i actually i witnessed you doing these creative things and it made me want to do that more mm. it was her makeup i used when i was drawing you know as a kid i would like steal her makeup and like draw with it essentially and of course i get in trouble but you know it was always like somewhat connected to my mother yeah because makeup's expensive <laughs> yeah so eventually she used to take me to the 99 cent stores or like um <laughs> And I would just buy makeup, but not to wear because I, you know, I was too young to wear it. But I would paint with it because she's like, "Here, you can use this." Yeah, but I love art. Yeah, I love the art supplies. Are like the, the like what do you call it? The like hundred and sixty assortment of um, yeah, yeah, like markers and yeah, yeah, and color pencils and, and yeah, yeah. But still attracted. So I guess at that, I mean, I guess from listening to you here about your parents, like I guess there was no issue with you going to getting a BFA at UNLV? Oh, well, well, that's funny. No? (laughs) My mom, sort of when we went to America, the concept really was for us to have more opportunity. And essentially, she had dreamed about me sort of, or like me and my sister to be like lawyers or doctors. Okay. You know, she was like, she was really proud to be like a tiger mom, but I was never really like, I never could fit that role (laughs) for her. My sister, though, had helped me a lot because she's a pilot. She's like the Hi- homecoming. Wait, 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 like actual pilot? <laughs> she's a pilot, yeah. Uh, okay. She started like uh, studying for her her license essentially when her first year in high school. So she got her <laughs> license like her second, third year of high school. Wow. And <laughs> no, she's amazing. Um, she's like, she's also one of my best friends. Like we're very close, but we're quite different, just highly supportive of each other, even though how different we are. But I think my mom sort of like that satisfied her need for me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and I'm the old, I'm the eldest. So she kind of assumed first before like my sister got in there that you'd be the one she thought, yeah, I'd be the one. (laughs) I watched enough SVU like in high school and got myself out of a lot of trouble by talking myself out of it. So my mom was like, you're going to be a great lawyer. She got, she talked me into it my first year. I like studied criminal justice, but it took me one week to to be like, no, (laughs) that's not going to happen. And then I jumped over to sociology for a minute and was really into women's studies and got into, got into that. But in reality, I was just like taking a bunch of classes. I took mostly philosophy and film classes and those are fun. Those were so fun. I was very into it. And my trajectory was, you know, essentially figure it out, but also enjoy myself. Yeah. Um, I love learning. That yeah. that wasn't like the problem there. It's just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But at UNLV, the prereqs, you have to take an art class and you have to take an art history class. That's a, that's a good prereq. It changed everything for me. Essentially taking art history changed my life. Art and photography changed my life. And I told my mom when I first took my photo class that I was going to study photojournalism. I was just trying to think of an occupation, like something that she would like get into. And in in my mind, it made sense. But in reality, that's not how I like approach photography or art whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, she just like found me photographing everything, including my grandmother and my friends and going, going deeper and deeper into it. And she was supportive. She she kind of understood, but sort of just assumed that like, you know, as I got deeper into photography, she was like, oh, like you could, you know, you could do weddings, you could take <laughs> portraits, you know, anything to find a job in there. You know, she was starting to figure out that for me, but it wasn't an easy just like hop into art. Yeah. It wasn't even easy when I went to my, got my MFA and she was like, you're moving to New York, a very expensive city yeah. to for art. <laughs> it's like, I'll be teaching mom. Don't worry. <laughs> Does Hunter offer teaching for his students? No, not okay. really. And <laughs> okay. it wasn't. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't. I just kind of. We think they did. It's such a huge class. No, it is. It is. Um, no, I, I TA during uh, my MFA, but I did not teach my own class. That was kind of like a thought in my mind, though. Like I I was interested in some capacity. I had done a teaching residency in between undergrad and grad school, and I really enjoyed it. But essentially kind of just, you know, keeping focus like MFA was such an intense time. And I'm glad I got to focus. I, you know, for a while had to work simultaneously, which I did throughout my MFA, but very as much as I could, I essentially my professors were like, you kind of have to balance. Yeah, it's hard. You know? It's hard. So then you, you focused on photography then for your undergrad then? It wasn't drawing or painting? I did for a while. Okay. No. So um, what happened was when I took the photo class, I ended up actually studying it and I wasn't even a declared art major until like maybe my second semester, third semester in in advanced photography classes, but I was taking drawing and painting Mm. classes. And I got into both, like I enjoyed both, but photography was a concentration and I did build a dark room in my my home. Really? Um, Wow. I did. It was fun. But, you know, I would spend so many hours in the dark room at home, especially. And I I did monitor in the, at UNLV too. So 
photography was for a moment was a big part of my life. And I was still studying philosophy and trying to put philosophy and film into the work. Which which they, they fit. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, studying like mood and tone and mm-hmm. film was so related in some ways. And photography was, you know, I enjoyed it and I still do in a different way. But I just found it really challenging too. I was focused a lot on identity and identity politics and trying to bring everything in. And it was, you know, as a, I think as a student, uh, like Mm. a student artist, you're trying to say so much, but you can only, you know, kind of fit everything in and sort of assume a lot more from the viewer. I was really going through that a lot because I was so invested in like, not even research, but I was so interested in so many different things. I, yeah. Not only, you know, philosophy, I love music, I love film, I love mm-hmm. all these things. And I was like, let's plug it all in. Mm-hmm. But that was a quick understanding that it wasn't possible. And it was, I, I like the challenge, but essentially that's how I started to kind of experiment more. Mm-hmm. And in photography, I was starting to do alternative processes, mm-hmm. trying to really create texture yeah. and play with the you know, play with the light developers. Mm-hmm. And then I got in a color. So I went from black and white and color. And that's sort of like you had analog color, the the old Kodak yes. system. Oh, wow. Yeah. I never had a chance to do that. <laughs> like I, I would like to. Uh, so it was like actually in undergrad, I always looked down on photography. <laughs> Yeah, I always I, I was like the I was like the oh painting is like the better thing, but now I drop painting and like I do I do more film stuff uh, and which is more related to photography and I had a photo blog actually for like I don't know eight years or so so I was like taking photos and posting them. This is before Instagram kind of made my photo blog irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> I had a photo that was titled, I wish I was a painter. And what'd you show? (laughs) (laughs) It was just this uh, photo that looked like a painting, essentially. It was like blurred Mm. and and sort of kind of had this, it was a tree, but it had this like more abstraction and less figurative. And I was still trying to, you know, understand what that was, but I'll, you know, I think in the background, I've always drawn and I've always painted, but I've never really, because I've always done it, I never really thought about it as like a thing I could do mm, professionally right. until, of course, art school. But in art school, I think the technical, learning the technicalities of photography was fascinating, feels kind of like a science in some ways. I did enjoy the dark room. The dark room was really, it's like so tactile. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it has this romantic sense because it's so it seems kind of archaic. Yeah, like even now that I think about digital photography, and it's so um, so much more forgiving in a way that film isn't. Yeah, I'm pretty jealous that I didn't just dive right into digital, but I don't think I could have taught how you know or understood how photography actually works without doing analog analog. Yeah. But yeah, it was you know. It, you know, the, there is the last year of the program, you can take, you can opt out to take an extra year and you get a studio. So that's like the BFA. It's mm. a BA and then it's a BFA. Okay. And it's sort of a, well, maybe it's an additional year to prepare for your MFA. It's like an MFA program. Yeah, it's like a post, post-bac. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that was the year that I kind of stopped doing photography and uh. essentially dove into studio art and started just playing with material and 
kind of expanding my language, but, and I kind of haven't been doing a lot of photography since that year. (laughs) I do. And I don't, I would say. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's on our phone, right? And I do it every day. (laughs) Yeah. So you graduate and then you did, what did you do in between uh, that time and your MFA? Yeah. So I ended up going, uh, getting my MFA in 2015. So in between that, right out of undergrad, uh, me and three other artists had opened up an artist run space called Fifth Wall Gallery. Okay. That's with, I think that was part of with Jen, right? Yes. It's in the same uh, building. It's called Emergency Arts. Yeah. Um, So there is these, yeah, small galleries within it and within our art community. And we, we have had one for a while and it's so different. Like I think about this now and I realize it was such a special time because it was so affordable and possible. There was four of us on top of it. So we divided the cost for four people. So from what I remember, I think it was like $50 each, you know, per it's, month. it's a month. Um, and so That's we learned, so um, I know. Well, we opened up a second space to be because it was so <laughs> possible. Um, but we weren't making money out of it. It wasn't yeah. about that at all. It was, it, you know, we definitely wanted to extend what was happening at UNLV and have that community and continue to have the at least a dialogue within yeah. the arts community and with each other yeah. and support other artists. We had, and I felt, you know, I think being in the art program made me realize how special and creative Nevada was or Las Vegas was I had a lot more a a lot more of an understanding that there was a creative community and I wanted to at least like learn more about that not just with the students but you know outside and I think that allowed us to kind of create new channels and learn what was out there but also provide solo shows to artists who haven't had the chance or for us Specifically, we wanted to create a space that wasn't just, I think there were, you know, there are, of course, really special art institutions in Las Vegas, but we were looking for like site-specific installation, experimental, like performance, video, all this kind of stuff that we were like, how do we, how do we do that? Let's just make it, you know, do it your kind of the DIY, do it yourself um, scene and it was, it was great. Uh, it lasted for about four years. That's great. And, you know, I had eventually left through. Yeah. Um, and cause I think about doing something like that here in New York still. And I'm like, well, yes. And, but not in the same way. It's just like not as possible, but it's hard. Well, I think, I think the key thing that you were saying is that you weren't thinking about money because like it's when it's that cheap, you don't have to, but right. But when you do have to pay, I don't even know how much it would cost for a huge space like that in New York, right? Like what, four or five, six thousand a month or something, at least. Well, there's a few things like that here. I mean, Underdonk, which is a gallery, and um, it's, I don't think it's active currently right now, but they have something like that where it's sort of like a co op community that they all kind of come in together. Yeah. We have something like that called Cat Skills but in in Tribeca <laughs> but it's at, we call it Catskills Gallery and there's maybe about 12 or more artists coming together to mm. have the space and it did become expensive like they eventually kind of learned that there's more than one lease uh, happening in there and and then they what, got upset <laughs> it is it, definitely building management that like you know didn't allow us to continue but but yeah so so 
it was it was interesting to hear that you went to Hunter. I knew I mean I know Hunter is like huge. I interviewed one person from Hunter, I think around your year, Eugenia Song. I don't know if you know Eugenia. <gasps> yes. Yeah, you know yeah. Eugenia. I I haven't looked okay, she's actually in my cohort. Um we graduated together. Okay, yeah. I didn't hear I okay, I have to look for your Yeah, because um, I went because I went to undergrad with Eugenia actually. And oh. and then her partner i'm uh, eddie i don't know if you ever met eddie yeah i did so i was like really good friends and like uh and then much later on he got a job at carnegie mellon as an architect oh and i was i was doing my master's there so then we uh <laughs> yeah then we connected and I, I visited eugenia's studio in in hunter and yeah and then i interviewed her and, and she obviously visited eddie a lot while i was there so Oh, wow. Yeah, I think, um, well, that's great. I love Eugenia. She's a, she's a good friend. Great work, too. I'm definitely going to have to listen to her episode. Be- <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's, in, it's in the catalog. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm sure I have a feeling that one day I'll get through the whole catalog. because. You don't have- <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I listen to Seeing Color in like my drives and I drive uh-huh. about three hours a day. What? Um, why, why, yeah. why do you drive? Cause is it cause, cause you're in, you're in a uh, Brooklyn, right? So I'm in sunset park to South Bronx. Okay. And, um, I've been trying to find out like at first it used to be, you know, really like the worst times of driving, which was like 9am and 6pm, yeah. yeah. but figuring out different routes, you know, different times to leave and, yeah, it, it's still a thing, but because I'm on so many phone calls throughout for work, anyways, I I've been taking that time to either work and then after work, I've been you know being able to connect like with my family. Like my mom's always like, "Oh, you never call." Now I'm always calling, like, <laughs> um, or close friends from Vegas. So yeah. So how was Hunter for you? Um, I really enjoyed Hunter. You know, it was definitely a big change. I moved to New York for Hunter because when I got into grad school, you know, I did want to try to stay closer to um, Las Vegas, try to go to California, you know, thinking about California, potentially I also got accepted to a school in Portland. Uh-huh. And yeah, I did not get into LA schools, but I did get into New York. And I was also surprised because, you know, I kind of just applied to so many different schools, maybe about five to six schools. Yeah, I was the same. I didn't really know what I wanted for me, I, my, my strategy was like, I'll apply first. And then if I get in, then I can spend the money to fly and check it out. That was sort of, cause it's so expensive to like, check it out, you know? Yeah. That's exactly how that happened for me. Cause I had, I mean, I've been in New York before, but not in a while and not for art essentially, but yeah. there was so much happening during my interview too. Cause the Whitney biannual was happening. Mm-hmm. I had professor, old professors there at the same time. Really fun. It was actually I just got a full experience for my interview and realized, right, New York is a really special place. Yeah. But I also, it was an interview. I think that was a year with Dana Schutz, right? 2015? No, I think Dana Schutz was 2017. Oh, okay. The, are you talking about like the, yeah. the whole... Um, Emmett Till thing, yeah. Emmett Till yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a pretty wild Whitney uh, year. I, that was actually I took a my hunter class with me. So we had a class where we essentially could teach the class what you know, however you want to program the class. But my take was that we would go to the Whitney and take a look at that piece and have a discussion, not just that piece, but yeah, like yeah. 
yeah. the show overall and talk about um I think there was another one called uh the the violence one. Oh gosh, with the VR set. Oh I'm I'm somehow oh, like, Jordan Wolfson. Jordan Wolfson. Yeah. 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 Dana's a great person. Um, you know, she's I've seen her talk, she's friends with friends, but that was a really big shock to see that painting alone on a wall mm-hmm. where there was a wall next to her with people of color and mm-hmm. with so you know, it was like packed. So recognizing that real estate so prime at the Whitney Biennial and having her own wall with that yeah. piece was just like, all right, let's talk about that. <laughs> but um, Hunter, Hunter was great. You know, it's a three-year program. I think outside of being a little culture shock and moving away from Vegas, which I, I guess moving away made me fall in love with Vegas in a different way and romanticize Vegas in a different way and understood how different that experience was when you're coming into a city like New York. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, especially in my, my first year, I was just so amazed. I was, I definitely had sort of a doughy eyed view of everything that was happening that I remember my professor was like, if you do that, you might die. Don't say yes to everything. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, take off, you know, she was like, take off your headphones when you're walking around the city, like always pay attention. She had like all these rules for me, (laughs) but, um, but it was a surprise. I got into the painting program, but I never Uh, painted really, really, which was, um, yeah, I like kind of went into it. I love painting. So in between 2011 and 2015, you know, after undergrad and before grad school, I drew and painted a lot. And that was not in with the intention of going to go into grad school. I didn't even think about it too much. Mm-hmm. I just thought was something I did to be able to make the work, the installations and sculptures I was doing. Yeah. So I sort of had like a two portfolio thing. And as I was applying, I was just like, photographing everything, documenting it in my yeah. archive and putting it out. Yeah. So when I applied to Hunter, I know I applied for sculpture and I also uh, applied uh, for painting. Yeah. To my surprise, when I was like painting, because I was like, oh, okay. Maybe they just um, have more painters. Is that it? Painting is a big part of Hunter. Um, it's a big part of the program. And I think in some ways when I look back, because I'm now painting again a lot. Yeah. But I kind of wish, you know, no, I, I don't regret anything. There's no wistfulness in that. But I, I went conceptual. Essentially, my yeah. whole thing was I would look at objects and like sort of paint with objects and or recognize how color is a part of an object. And I can sort of arrange things in a way that I would paint. Yeah, yeah. And sort of find a relationship between objects and painting. Um yeah. And that was really challenging for a while. I think I did like one of my first sculptures that I did was um, I took about maybe 144 scrubs, like plastic scrubs. Okay. And arranged them in a like sort of a pattern or it's like a chevron pattern. Mm-hmm. Essentially, then I made this like um, 12 foot sculpture that was a soft sculpture and you can bend it and fold it. But that sort of led to me making more with everyday objects and seeing uh, the inherent like information embedded in those objects. Yeah. But I, I think at the end, my thesis was pa- about painting sculpture in all, all of the above. Like there was drawing in there. There was sort of like put all, all of it in one bucket and I was fine with it. But 
I think I put stretcher bars in there. There were stretcher bars in my thesis. It's technically, it's technically <laughs> painting. Yeah. It yeah. was to me. And I, I focused in on the color red 40 and I used it as a pigment. So, you know, in my mind, I was sort of, and still I'm kind of painting in that sense, but I think I can sort of leave the word painting out of it a bit now and yeah. realize that I'm kind of in this other um, sort of pseudo alchemy or pseudo uh, scientist, like, viewpoint of making art rather than a, you know i'm not a qualified capital p painter i just don't think i yeah you know don't it's really okay. have that desire. <laughs> no I'm, I'm good <laughs> uh yeah i was always curious like what it'd be like being hunter because i feel like like you were describing the stimulus is like insane and then to like go to school while like in new york and then i guess for for hunter specifically right in the middle of the lower east side slash Rebecca slash that part of the city well it was a shock what kind of studios were available to us um, yeah because you i think eugenio was saying like that period it was like in the midst of a renovation right yeah we ended up moving into the new building which is at 205 hudson it's in tribeca but it's like right underneath chinatown so it's like yeah Right next um, to Beyonce and Jay-Z. Exactly. Right across. You can think, see them. I think Eugene was like, yeah, there's, there's, that's their, was it balcony or whatever? I think you could see like some of their sculptures, like what Aaron Young's gold sculpture. I forget one of the, one of the, one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually wild because when I did my interview at Hunter and you do this little tour of the facilities, they yeah. like, you can go into the ceramic or wood shop. And they essentially pointed out, they're like, okay, and that's where Beyonce lives. Yeah. I think they moved out like essentially the year after. Oh. Like I, my second year and they moved to LA <laughs> forever. <laughs> forever. Yeah. Um, so I don't think they saw that anymore, but I remember I was part of the Beyonce times. So <laughs> Bay times was part of me, at least in my history, but yeah. no more. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I guess, I mean, the first thing that I thought of, I mean, when I was looking at your work was like, it did feel very New York. I don't know if you felt it was, or like you felt like this is actually what your work looked like when you were in Las Vegas, but just like the, like, I mean, I think part of it is like what you're describing, the use of like the materials, but like the way that was being used and the way that it was being assemblaged, it felt like, I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go into like an LES like gallery and this is what I'd expect to see. <laughs> yeah, I... I'm not sure how much um, like New York has influenced the way that I like create. Maybe I'm sure it does. Cause you know, I kind of think everything in my life sort of inspires the work that I do, but I was really surprised at how much Vegas was going to influence the work. Mm. Um, but maybe it's not the aesthetic, but it's sort of some of the root of what I was exploring. Um, I was really interested in little things, you know, I, I, I normally I wouldn't take liking spicy food as a, a thought in my mind and how right. I would make work about it. Really? But when I was, uh, yeah, and uh, Red 40 is essentially hot cheeto. like I was yeah. working with hot cheetos I saw that, yeah. and calling it Red 40 because I was really interested in the like material properties of the food and trying to remove oneself like out of just seeing hot cheetos. But I also was like, it is hot Cheetos. What about Red 40 was interesting? Well, you know, to, to kind of go back to just it being hot Cheetos and then also thinking about it as calling it Red 40, the thing that I found really attracted to it 
is just how bright and red and unnatural the mm-hmm. color looked when you put it and amassed it. So I ended up even um, my first time I had showed it to my class. I'd, you know, it was a, just one bag of hot Cheetos, one of those, like maybe um, a larger bag. So it's like, I want to say like 0.75 ounces of um, hot Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of looked like a piece of meat, like raw meat, <laughs> except it looks so unreal. And to my surprise, now I don't think this could happen, but during that time in 2015, not everybody had even eaten hot Cheetos or knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And that surprised me. Like, that's one of my culture shock happened because that's such a regular thing that was in Las Vegas. Mm. Me and my friends would eat it after yeah. a night out. <laughs> I ate that since high school, like middle school. So recognizing that wasn't a thing here, I was like, yeah. hold on, like, let's, let's actually like think yeah. about this. And then, and then I just realized how much I was. Um, so the color was a, an app, you know, was an abject thing that I, I was kind of interested in. But outside of that, I have this funny story where like I realized the food was actually flammable. So like it says flaming hot Cheetos, but it's actually flammable. Yeah. I you did like you you burned it. <laughs> yeah, that came to me yeah. in such a funny way. I don't always tell the story, but I, I think I should probably tell you. Uh it was like a my first year, my first Easter in New York uh-huh. on my first apartment. I'm not religious, but you know, I do like to kind of create rituals and I'm yeah. into some spirituality. And I was like, well, if this is Easter, <laughs> I wanted to like, I was like, maybe I'll figure out what I'm doing in grad school. Like, cause I was still trying to figure it out. So what I wanted to do was just shower in the dark. Okay. And I went and took it, took a shower and it was so clumsy. I like, I hit the shampoo, I hit the conditioner. It was all tumbling down. It wasn't a cute event. And I wanted to light a candle. And that was when I like realized like, oh my gosh, what if the hot Cheeto was actually connected? Does it, does so it smell? What does it smell like when you burn it? It smells like burnt plastic. Wait, that doesn't sound good. No, the whole thing totally came to shock. Like it was shocking. Um, so that's what made me look at the the material properties. It yeah, was like yeah, yeah. not only the like the look of it, but like I looked at the nutrition facts and just looked at the ingredients, and I was like, what could be flammable here? So red forty, it is an artificial food dye. It's the most popular food dye, but mm-hmm. it's also uh, made out of petroleum. Um, and, uh, coal, tar, and they make like 15 million pounds a year, but there are known carcinogens inside red 40 and it's been known as a risk, <laughs> but there's all these things that I like uncovered after just an internet search. Um, so do you still eat hot Cheetos? No, um, not so much unless I want to get inspired. Uh, <laughs> it's dr- your drug of choice. Artist well, choice. <laughs> I had this silly ritual when I would go to my studio because I did have at some point like 300 pounds of hot Cheetos. Yeah. I would okay. eat one for inspiration. And uh-huh. then I started to actually feel like, um, and maybe this is just something, you know, maybe it didn't really happen, but I had start, I started to feel like I couldn't think straight in the hyper, like as I learned mm. about the hyperactivity and not yeah. being able to focus yeah, yeah. and eating one, like if I could actually train myself to only eat one and not the whole bag, that yeah. would be, that was like my ritual, but very Zen to at do the that. End of the day, 
uh, I learned different ways to create rituals because uh, by the end of the year, my third year at Hunter, I was just sort of done with eating hot Cheetos. <laughs> and I just, I pulverized all my hot Cheetos essentially. Yeah. Sand. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Cause at least the, one of the pieces that you did where you were mixing, not only the red hot Cheetos or at least the red 40, but also the MSG to make that sort of, it looked like the traditional Japanese um, sand what I forgot what you call them, but yeah, a Zen Zen garden. Yeah, the Zen, the gardens, Zen rock yeah. gardens. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I made that red forty Zen MSG rock garden. Essentially, it's hand pulverized hot Cheetos, flaming hot, actually extra hot flaming hot Cheetos. So it's even deeper red mm. and spicier. <laughs> I I had people during my like studio visits my last year when I was doing it. People would come in and their eyes would turn red and their lips would like start to feel spicy. Uh, It was so intense of a project, but working with MSG, I tried to grow grow my own crystals too, similar to the way that you can grow your own crystals with salt. Okay. Some of it, it's not as beautiful as like a normal crystal. You could, you know, you can grow like a junior high science experiment, essentially. So the the salt rocks though, um, I did have one in my bedroom with, a, you know, those salt lamps that have, you know, you could turn on and it like yeah, yeah, based yeah. off the heat. It's supposed to be great. Purifies the air. So essentially I was thinking about something that's good for your body, mm-hmm. but also something started the contrast is hot Cheetos. And I was studying the homeopathic doctrine of like, like our ill cures ill. So or like, like cures like, I mean, okay. So like things that uh, make you ill can also cure you. Mm. So that's the sort of fabricated space I had made was this like center of red 40 where things that are supposedly bad for you can also be good for you. And, you know, studying traditional Japanese or healing, but also Western capitalism and and trying to figure out how those two sort of meet. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in your research, was the MSG considered a positive thing or negative thing? Um, so MSG is an interesting chemical. Um, it's a synthetic chemical that enhances flavor. And I think it has a, it's, has a contentious history too. Yeah. I know about it a bit. Um, but I think, uh, the one thing that was fascinating to me is really like what it physically does. So as a chemical, it it stimulates the appetite, it stimulates and enhances flavor. The flavor that it's trying to create is the umami flavor. Right. Um, which translates to delicious. Right. But um, I sort of recognized it as something that what it so specifically like the neurological um, activation is that it kills receptors. So it like messes with your receptors, your excitoxins when you're mm-hmm. eating these things that kind of like allow you to understand taste or understand that you're full are sort of being depleted. Hmm. And then so you can eat more. And I kind of thought about that as in relationship to capitalism mm, or like mm. never really, or even addiction, Yeah, you know, never really getting to appease your appetite. Mm. And it's also in preservatives, preserved food, canned foods, et cetera. But, you know, in some ways it's delicious. People can love it. I think it's okay. Yeah. But in the other case, you know, you kind of need to know what the chemical does. And, <laughs> um, you don't need to know, but it's part of it. So I thought those two were really interesting to come together as things that we enjoy, but also things that could be potentially problematic. Yeah, yeah. I remember growing up, 
and seeing no like in different restaurants that says like no, no MSG. MSG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then I I never really thought about MSG so much until, you know, I think it was just something that like I saw on ingredients, but then I saw that it was like a bad thing with these signs that would always say like they don't have MSG here. It's like every it's everywhere in Asia or at least in China and it's like it just it's just seen as like a salt, another salt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, I really like that juxtaposition of, like, the idea of, like, a Zen garden supposed to be calm and then being confronted, like you were saying, with, like, the visceral feeling of the spicy hot Cheetos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I physically had the Zen rake, gar- like, the Zen rake there, and, you know, it felt like, you know, in my mind, when I first did it, when I physically did it myself, I was like, actually, this is a physically hard and challenging thing to do this is quite interesting to be because you actually really do have to concentrate it becomes like a performance it is yeah certainly endurance i have videos performance yeah it's like and you're doing a line drawing on the ground you know so you have to be precise you have to be present and i i started recognizing not only is it like visually like pleasant to see but it's actually the the practice of it you know is really highly rewarding and that's why they have little like Zen garden, like tabletops mm-hmm. uh, for like to calm your mind. And you're just like moving through the sound. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't even think about the drawing element for that piece or like when I, I that's the piece that I have structure bars for. So mm-hmm. it's in a set of structure bars, the pigments inside. Yeah. And then I drew around the rocks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and when I saw it there, I, was, I there were so many little things that I didn't realize. And it was somebody who had told me, they're like, is this an earth piece? And I was like, it is kind of land art, but I never thought about it that way. But, but I would love to like, you know, bring it into the desert and have I think that it's a repellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make a little hot cheese. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that piece, there's a lot of different interesting things all kind of happening at once. I mean. I think it's a thing. It's uh, yeah, just it's and it's really simple. I think that's what's also really nice about it. Like you see it, and it you kind of it hits you all at once, both metaphorically and I guess if you're there viscerally, right? Yeah, I I wish I could do that with everything. It's um, I really I'm trying to understand tone like that where. I like what we were talking about when I was a student in my first year in undergrad, trying to understand how to put all this information in like a photograph. Yeah. And it's the reason why I started working with objects because I had felt the power of like objects having this embedded information already doing things for me. Yeah. yeah. And I can just leave it at that. Yeah. And it becomes this open, you know, sort of open for interpretation based off of your experience and allows those connections to happen. And I no longer really matter in that way. Did you save all the hot Cheetos? You can probably reuse it, right? Well, the fun thing, the great thing about hot Cheetos, and I did have classmates that didn't believe me, what? was it's sort of repellent. So roaches and rats or mices do not eat spicy food. So they don't eat hot Cheetos. They're repellents. But yeah, no, I do have it in a bin. It's in my studio. Um <laughs> I wasn't able to take everything because uh, right after grad school, I moved in and, you know, my studio was at home, my home first. And yeah. I share it with also my partner who I collaborate with. But there is sort of like, you know, there's 300 pounds and then there's like <laughs> yeah. 100 pounds I could fit in the bin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can imagine 
what 300 pounds looks like but yeah <laughs> it's it's what you call it's probably too much i mean i <laughs> yeah. when you pulverize it it's yeah. a whole different story right like that's yeah. the best part like i mean it's still the same amount of weight like that was the one thing in my mind that i kind of forgot when i started like grinding it down and i was like okay it's hopefully like it's going to be like easier to pack but it's still as heavy as the same like yeah. <laughs> weight as the hot cheetos yeah, yeah. It's not super heavy, but I had two brute garbage cans. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, two, almost three full. Okay, wow. Of, of them. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I kind of stepped away from it for a while, especially when I didn't have a studio outside of my home. Yeah. Could not work that way with cat. Yeah, yeah. It's not something you can really do. Yeah. So do you have a studio now or is your studio still your home? I do. I have a studio um, in Sunset Park, about 15 minutes from my home. And now I'm kind of getting back into pigment, but I've been working with this Lutakis. And the fun thing about that specific color is that because Takis is a tortilla, that it's yellow and then the powder is blue, it actually makes green. Mm. So it's making this really beautiful green pigment. Mm-hmm. And it start, sort of looks like iodized copper or something like that to that color green. Mm. But yeah, and right now I'm just trying to make materials for something for me to play with. And I'm thinking a little bit more about um, like sand paintings or maybe even uh, I've been trying to flock with it, for example. Mm. How's it, how's that Finding different ways to suspend. Oh gosh, it's really challenging because it's so, so the one thing about any of these food products is that they're so oily. Yeah. And you know, and I have to allow time to set to see how much oil will seep out. So that way I can at least understand it's like material or how it's going to play with the other materials. Yeah. And trying to avoid adding resin so I don't lose the texture of the food because mm. I don't want to just drop resin right into it. But right. yeah, it's, it's taking time for me to play with it, but it is just like, you know, me playing with food in my studio. Yeah, I mean, if you could flock it and have it still retain that, I think that would be really cool, right? Yeah, yeah, that's my that's the goal. I've been yeah. working with different ways to do it now. The flocking, I, I I even try to flock it right on felt, which is also kind of thready and yeah, yeah. you know, kind of. It's interesting because uh, because of the green, it just looked like a green sponge. <laughs> it's like it's so weird. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm hoping to get somewhere in the next few months. Um, I'm, I'm trying it all right now. And I have these, like, looks like a little, uh, like food lab or ki- weird kitchen <laughs> yeah. is, I guess, what my studio looks like right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I get nervous every time I come in, I'm always like, please, like at some point I do think mice or roaches, that's actually, I'm like quite scared now. Cause I'm working with normal Cheetos. Cause I love the bright orange. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, they love cheese and I'm like very nervous, but I've been c- keeping them very clean. I've been yeah. keeping everything clean, but on the walls are my swatches of food. Well, <laughs> and as long as they don't climb that high and there's no shelving around, I feel fairly safe, but I'm also like, I'm yeah. in New York. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my neighbors will be very upset at me if it was, you know, me causing the rat infestation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you lived in New York before, right? I sort of did. So I grew up there and then my my dad got a job in New Hampshire when I was in eighth grade. So I kind of mm. lived there as a kid, which is very different than as you can imagine living there as an adult. So I lived in what, Midtown, 63rd in York from like when I was zero to what, 
14, 15, or 12, yeah. I forget. Yeah. So my parents always regretted. They're like, oh, like, we we should have bought instead of rented. But, like, they moved there in 86. So, like, it, New York was not what everyone thought it is now, right? It was, like, yeah, just kind of getting out. There was lots of drug use and crime there. And so they were like, oh, maybe we'll be here just for a little bit, and then we'll move out. And so they rented and... Yeah, and then they're like, when they left, they're like, oh, everything that we looked at became like, you know, millions of dollars. <laughs> yes, and growing. It and seems gro- like yeah. nothing gets cheaper yeah. here. Yeah. I meet kids who grew up here or like adults who have grown up here. I feel like when I meet a kid or speak to a kid that, you know, who is currently growing up here, I get so amazed. I, I feel like the street smart here. I was not, I was different. not street like, smart, I don't think. <laughs> Well, I think if you went to the subway or, you know, as an adult, I'm going through a subway and I'm still getting lost. But yeah. like seeing kids, like a 13 year old, just navigate yeah. all the way through. I'm just like, I don't know if I could do that when I was 13. <laughs> I did that for one year, I think. Cause like, yeah, I think cause in seventh grade, that's when like the school gave us our Metro card and we could actually do it. But <laughs> so I did it for a year. That's some street smart. <laughs> yeah. So. But yeah, I think, you know, so I don't feel very New York because like I missed out on like, well, not that I missed out. I, I mean, I just didn't experience some of that stuff after, which I think is important if you want to, I guess, say you lived in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I still have never lived in like Manhattan. I li- I've always lived in Brooklyn or I did live in Long Island City, but I do love Brooklyn. Like I'm, I'm very sold to it, but now that I've been traveling through the Bronx, you know, I, I feel like it'd be exciting at least one day to like live, live in the city and sort of like be in the middle of everything and yeah. kind of leave your apartment and just be yeah. in it. There's yeah. something romantic about that, but it's so expensive. So yeah. it'll take some time. Yeah, I think I see it's like each year that passes, I'm like the chances of me going to New York is less and less. <laughs> well, how long is your PhD? How many year program is it's like that? three to four years oh, they offer, wow. which is fast. Most PhDs are like five or six or seven or. Is it with art or um, are you, yeah. What's the focus or what are you studying or researching? Um, the program is, is, it's called computational media arts. It's like trying to combine art and technology, uh, but it's like, uh, still, I would say 95% tech and like 5% art, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You still have a studio? No, they don't give me a studio. So they want it to be more interdisciplinary, but like they, this program just started. So this is a, so like the school is uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and they just opened up a branch in mainland China. So mm-hmm. it's like a new program. So they're still figuring things out. But like when I applied, they're like, I don't know if you know this, but like in PhDs, there's like different types of art PhDs. There's some called practice-based and some called practice-led. And practice-led is more theoretical and practice-based is like, it's, it's based in practice. So you, you have to do things. So like, you know, exhibitions. So they said they would accept both as a form of thesis, but like I get here and it's like, there's like one artist and everyone else is like a tech person. And then the tech people don't even know like how to even grade, I guess, a exhibition or practice-based thing. And they, they also haven't had anyone graduate with it yet. So they're just sort of like not, like they don't even know what that would look like. 
So my plan is try to graduate as fast as possible and get back to teaching. So I'm just sort of like, I'll just write the papers that they need me to write. But my goal of the PhD was to like have the time to like learn how to code and think more critically about AI as opposed to using it sort of randomly. Mm. How's it going? Has it been influencing the work that you're making? So far, no. I mean, I, it takes, you know, coding is is hard. <laughs> it takes a while. So I think directly not yet. I mean, I think that I was able to, like that VR piece that I showed you, like that piece was done in Unreal, which I didn't do any coding, f like direct, like C++ coding for it. So at least I was glad I was able to make that piece and have it shown and have something to kind of push me forward, I guess, art-wise. But the coding-wise, I'm just, they don't give me a studio and I'm just sort of allowing me to have this time to learn how to code because I know I'll go back to the making of the art after. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. A PhD in, in art and technology. I think that's going to be a fascinating route for you. Um, I mean, I haven't really dabbled too much in AI, but what I find really fascinating when I do yeah. is the glitch. Because it's still kind of an early, like yeah, we're in an yeah. early yeah. And I, I'm kind of playing with that lately where even the Photoshop beta, they have the AI generator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've been just messing with it, you know, and kind of enjoying how awful it, yeah. it sometimes can be. And, and also it'll be great for great, you know, photo editors or even people who just want to create their scenes. But right now I'm like in love with the bad aesthetic. Bad aesthetic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, so one of the problems I came up with when I was making that VR piece, so one of the things I was trying to do was I did this piece that was with Edward Said and I filmed all these objects in the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco and then I gave it to an AI system that translated the, the flat images into 3D objects, right? Whoa. Uh, but then... Right before the show happened in the summer, an article came out basically saying like this service, actually their backend was so shitty that they actually weren't doing it. And they're actually like outsourcing like cheap labor to like as quickly as possible. Like look, someone would look at this image and like make a shitty 3D model out of it. So what I thought was like glitchy, bad AI <laughs> translations was actually just like like manual, like cheap labor being forced to make something as fast as possible. Wow. Which sort of like made me, you know, which is sort of what I'm interested in, which is why I'm interested in at least thinking critically. Cause like when I went to that show in, in Austria, it's like everyone was saying they're using AI and it, but I, from the text and after using it, it just felt like this black box where I actually didn't know how it was being made and how it was being used. And it's just like, it was this catchphrase that everyone was like, oh, I'm using AI. But what that means, and if the person who's using it knows what that means, I don't know, you know? Wow, that's really wild. Because I don't think, I, I didn't realize, especially like the computing time, like how, how, how does someone go and like take your image, do that thing, and then like it generates for you or like, I guess you don't know what happens when you like feed the machine something and then where it's going, like what channels are coming back yeah. are going to come back to you. I, I would say that that's like a, you know, you're kind of breaking that agreement of like you're talking, you're working with a machine, but you're actually not like, 
Yeah. I, I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, I think that's the funny thing about AI right now too, because the way it's like sourcing images is, you know, being fed through people. But at the same time, it's also like reading the biases or, you know, sort yeah. of understanding how people are generating information, how the machines are generating or reading that information. Yeah. And humans are also fine tuning it, right? Like, I don't know if you read that article about how like uh, what OpenAI basically had like cheap labor in Kenya to train all of its its stuff. Mm-mm. So yeah, so like they hired a bunch of uh, I think um, I think it was in Kenya they just hired because like they had to make sure all the stuff that was being fed into OpenAI was I guess not insane since they're feeding things like Reddit and all this stuff. So people were like being subjected to all the stuff that the thing was being trained on, and they had to retrain it manually to be like no like you know, Nazis are not good, even though Reddit might say they're good or whatever. And, um, you know, causing a lot of psychological trauma because they had to kind of, you know, see these images and read about this stuff that was bad and, and filter it out for us to use. Wow. That's really, intri- that's really fascinating. I mean, outside of that, there's also going to be the opposite, right? Where it's like, there's a negative thing, but like, what else is it trying, like the, there's like this sort of filter that's happening too, where one has to kind of subject it as like, this is good or this is bad or this is wrong or this is right. Yeah. And like, what are those types of value systems and how they're even like, where is that rule book? But yeah, that's, that is really wild. I think AI is still the wild, wild west right now, man. So that should be fun. Um, kind of entering in that on top of, being a new program in your at your school right now yeah yeah we'll see i mean i I see this as like an mfa part two that's sort of how i see it but like with less art but yeah yeah interesting well i'm excited to see where your work goes with it i'm sure it'll it'll come in there um and i mean obviously you already made the the vr piece recently yeah but that's gonna be fascinating and I feel like maybe you'll be the person I'll have to have AI questions about too. <laughs> Haven't played too much with it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you can totally ask me. I don't feel like I'm an expert. There's like, I think that there are like a lot more smarter people out there who's like really into the AI stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. You're not really, you know, thinking about like AI art. Like that to me, I mean, you've seen like competitions of like, competitions of AI like generated it's, it's, it's yeah it's an and it's insane here because like I'm meeting all these like tech people who are like trying to get AI to understand like Kandinsky Mondrian Picasso I'm like this is so boring and it's <laughs> like, weird because like think about who they're selecting too it's like oh god I know old white painters we're gonna AI is gonna just recycle all that again like I know that's why I'm you know who who are who is gonna tell AI like let's you know kind of change the dialogue here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but we'll see. Five years from now, I'm sure it's a whole different landscape. It'll uh, be so different. It. It's it's happening so fast. It's 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 insane. Like some of the tools that I learned a year ago, it's changed so much already. It's hard. It's really hard to keep up. Yeah, I think technology always, um, and then the smarter it is, the faster it's gonna get. So I guess we're at that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I know. Um, I mean, I think I don't have too much more to talk about. I have one. I so I like. I mean, one thing was I saw that you have two shows that are up right now, right in Las Vegas. Yes, yes. Um, I'm in. Uh, it's the Marjorie Barrick Museum. It's on the UNLV's campus. Um, one show is called The Emotional Show, and then the other one's Lined and Torn, and that's open till March 24, I think, or no, March, I think March 2024. Yeah, yeah, well, at least I have it written down March 16th, at least one of them. March 16th. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I think they open at the same time and close at the same time, so. What were you showing there? Um, so for the Line and Torn show, it was actually a recent acquisition. They bought a suite of drawings mm. and it, uh, eight small, like nine by 12 drawings of casino carpet studies. And there are these drawings that I created or I have been creating over the last, I think, eight years of just studying different patterns. So you can kind of see something behind me here. Where, where, so which carpet is that from? This one is from the Fiesta, which okay. is the carpet that I grew up in. And okay. you can't really see it from this distance, but in, embedded in the pattern is words that says heaven or Las Vegas. Th this part of the original, the original says that? No, I, I, I put that in. I don't know. Can you see it? I, There's I, words. I, can't, I cannot see the words from, from the <laughs> video, but yeah. It's, it's actually quite hard in person too, because I, I essentially made the pattern or use the pattern to write the words and then also added it to the pattern. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely camouflaged in, but I've been really interested in casino carpets specifically. One, I just grew up in it and my grandma was a gambler. So I spent a lot of time in casinos. And the one that I spent the most time in was this carpet, Fiesta's carpet. And I always found it really like quite beautiful, but at the same time, it also had sort of this like stroke that was similar to like Looney Tunes. Like there was like different elements that made me feel like I was looking at a, a body part of like a Looney Tune yeah. <laughs> character, Bugs Bunny or even Elmer Fudd. I would see these things in there, but I, uh, yeah, since then I've been really looking down on a lot of carpets and what I learned, like not only is it like a exercise of bad taste, because it's not really meant to be aesthetically pleasing, but it's doing a lot of other things. Like, I guess it's designed to sort of lose things. Like if you drop similar to like how bus seats, you can, you know, they hide dirt. Uh, so you, if you drop like chip. Exactly. Uh... It gets lost in there. So it has this capital gain too. And, and then, yeah, there's this, you've been in a casino. It has this like, yeah, like, you know, infinite abyss feeling yeah. with any um, exposure to the outside. I'm reading a book called Addicted to Design. It's great. Actually, it talks about computer machining a lot because essentially some of the algorithms that are used in like games, apps are being, you know, utilized and how like the attention economy for a slot machine and how, you know, the design right, right. floor plan. It's not just the game, but it's also everything that's surrounding oneself. So I'm learning a bit of how the machine, uh, the casinos layout and architecture is created to, you know, perpetuate yeah. gambling. Gambling, yeah. Yeah. So casinos, casino carpets was kind of from that, but yeah, so I have eight of those uh, awesome. in that, and they're out, made out of Crayola. It's just so you know things. It's one of my meditations that I continue doing. That's good. But I have 
a, a wide span of them. It was actually one of my professors at Hunter who she was my painting professor my first semester when I told her I wasn't going to paint, but she was looking at my painting. Who was, who was that? Um, Valerie Jodan. Okay. Uh, she's like part of the pat- PNDs, the pattern and design kind okay. of movement. Uh-huh. Great abstract painter. Um, but she was the one who specifically told me if I'm not going to show painting and drawings, that I continue to do secret paintings and drawings. So I can do my thing, but I can have these drawings and paintings that I don't maybe even show the internet that I just keep continue doing if I'm going to do them. And then one day when it's like time to kind of share them, you know. I like that idea. I really like that idea because it came, it was in this recent moment because I've been so busy these past uh, few years. But, you know, when uh, Alicia from uh, Marjorie Barrick, she had asked me, you know, can I see some drawings from the series? I was like, oh my goodness, like thinking about what I had. And I was like, oh, I should produce some because I forget. And then I was like, I have a stack. I haven't shown anybody yet. I'm so glad I have this because that's what I pulled from. I just kind of showed her my entire not not every single piece but essentially I've been doing them and I I don't I never really you know valued them in the same way too because they are just sort of the, a smaller set of drawings and then I realized I've done enough to like kind of go into a, a series a body of work yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that's great it was really nice to um I haven't seen it in person yet I'm going to be seeing it in a month when I go back home to visit my family a little part of me wishes I could just do a staycation and stay in the casino at least one night or two, just so I can feel. That seems like possible. Could- no, I mean, because because as I understand it, the hotels and in the casinos are cheap because they want you to gamble, right? Exactly, and also drinks are free if you gamble. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun stuff. But yeah, I think the the thing that they're adding now is a resort fee. So. You know, you can get a, a really cheap, like $29 hotel room, at least from like five years ago. I remember this was happening still. Mm-hmm. And then you go and get your $29 hotel room. But it's like, if you're not a local, it's, you know, I think $50 more for the resort fee or something like that. Like, oh, that's where they get you. <laughs> uh, but I am a local-ish I still so, so oh so they have a separate price if you have a uh, Las Vegas ID. Yeah, they have oh. local. Interesting. I didn't know that. At least certain, d- depending on what hotel. But mm. I do know like Excalibur has local deals because mm. they know that certain. You know, if you're on the strip and you don't want to drive home, you can probably just like mm. stay out. Yeah, <laughs> stay in Excalibur, which maybe is sounds attractive to me now. But I think when I lived there, I would have done that. Um, and yeah, and then the emotional show was just, yeah, it's a tapestry of like hand sewn karaoke lyrics for my grandma's favorite song. And essentially it's a piece that I made for my grandma called a cock. It's called Quickity and Lovesick Blues. You know, karaoke is a big part of our lives, but outside of that, so is, uh, there's like this two like shrimps that are creating a yin yang. But she loves like shrimp, but it's plastic, so it can last forever, which is something. Do you, that do you, so you do? You grew up with karaoke. Oh yeah, yes. It, I I grew up with karaoke. Actually, one of the maybe the last memories I have of my mom and dad um, when I we were still in Japan together, like married, doing karaoke. 
Yeah. And they're like, I think matching shirts too. Like they're both wearing like black and white striped shirts. <laughs> and the songs that I, I have such a connection to the songs that they were obsessed with because separately when I hang out, when I live or when I stay with my dad in Japan or when I'm with my mom in Vegas, uh, they still choose the same songs, which I, I'm always like, you know, recognizing sort of the only parts that I remember they're like, mm. I understand love a little bit based off of the songs that they're choosing, but yeah. uh, is such a big thing in, in Las Vegas, but I've definitely carried it on here. And that's good. Do I'm, I've been dabbling in video work recently with some of the karaoke. I saw you yeah, the 15, 15 second, you call them silent karaoke. So. Oh yeah. The silent balance, but it's a little bit, I, I'm still trying to figure it out because essentially it's like a sonic piece without having it to be auditory um but now i'm kind of doing the opposite where it's like you're seeing the visuals the aesthetics of what a karaoke song looks like at least i grew up with karaoke videos that were so dramatic there was always especially in japan they had these like or it felt like korean dramas or japanese dramas where you see a whole like acting scene between a couple and then you see you like apply it music but then you see that same video with another new song yeah. and you're like <laughs> yeah not, not even related <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well because like, i think it was funny because like i think right for copyright reasons they can't show the original video but in china <laughs> they have no issue with that they just show, they just show uh, <laughs> they just show the original video well now it's so now it's kind of like i went to a karaoke room um a few months or what was it last year already in yeah. vegas uh, and they essentially have an iPad who you could just go on YouTube and now it's any, like any song is yeah. possible. Yeah. 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 So it, yeah, that totally changes the way I even approach my song collection. Now I can like go into something obscure, like, like yeah. Kate Lamont. Yeah. 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 <laughs> songs no one's ever heard of, but I guess the fun part is, you know, if you're singing with a community or collective, yeah, hopefully that they feel familiar with not like what <laughs> what is this song so we'll see but but yeah that's the piece that i have in um that show so starkly different i don't even know if it makes it obvious that it's the same maker but i i do think they're somewhat connected yeah i mean i don't know yeah i don't think it is that important that it has to be seen as from the same maker but yeah i mean it looked like a great show you know it looked like you're also showing with a lot of great artists in the same show, like I think one, I mean, Linda Bangless is there, Christine Sun Kim is there. Uh, you know, I would totally see that show. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm i excited. I was sad not to go to the opening because I definitely wanted to see some familiar faces too. Yeah. But I work full time. So, yeah. An opening for uh, the artists I work for like a week before or a week after. So that meant staying close to New York. But that's good. Well, I think, I mean, we're sort of winding down. I've, I, you know, I really enjoyed chatting with you and um, I'm not sure if I missed anything or if there's anything else you want to throw out there. No, that's, uh, I feel like we had a really fruitful and interesting conversation, but I really hope you keep in touch too. I'd love to know what's going on with your work. And, yeah. Yeah. Especially with your PhD, because that's a, that's another undertaking that I fully don't understand, but I'm interested because... Yeah, I'm kind of interested in it, but I don't yeah. know. It's mainly because my goal is to want to go back to school. Like I love yeah. going to school. <laughs> I mean, I talked about this with Crystal, but I'm not sure you heard that part, right? But like, it's kind of 
depends what kind of PhD you want. Kind of like what I said earlier, like there's practice-led and practice-based. And like practice-led is more traditional. And then there's like practice-based ones, which is it's kind of steeped in more studio-based. Like I think I think Santa Barbara um, has like a practice-led one, which is basically art history. And then you could do a studio one, but you still have to do the art history. So, and you don't they don't give you more funding or more time to do it. Uh-huh. And it's like five to seven years. So I didn't do that. And then like Oxford has a three-year practice-based one, which is basically like an MFA part two. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it depends on what you want to do with it. And if you just want more time to do work, then if if you can find one that's practice-based, that's funded. Yeah. Yeah. Keyword that's funded, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're out there. You just have to look. Actually, I mean... I read, I was doing like a, I read a study about like these art practice based, practice led PhDs. And actually Japan has one of the highest numbers of PhDs, I think with art, but like you have to speak Japanese, I think probably most likely, but they have like a whole bunch of PhDs with, with practice based art programs. I wonder what kind of people are coming out of that. I don't know. Maybe they're just staying in Japan. Keep it, keep it insular. Yeah, you know? true. I was like, what artists are doing uh, that? But wow. yes, yeah. So I think you have to you have to search it because it's like as you probably know, like in the in the West, especially in the U.S., like the masters are sort of like considered a terminal degree. So you, people aren't really talking about it. So you have to kind of find it out. Yeah, um, I don't even feel like we talked a lot about it in in my MFA. Like you know the that possibility. I didn't either. This is sort of like I was I was teaching an hour south of where I'm doing my PhD and that's the only reason I kind of even knew like knew where it was, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I got my 3 years of university teaching down and then so if I do this PhD I can go right back into teaching, right? So yeah. it's like maybe I'll try it out. Yeah, well, good luck. I'm definitely, you know, uh I'm excited to see how your work also kind of gets influenced by it. But I feel like I mean, one of my favorite things about just making sometimes is like the information you sort of, I, I mean, at least for me, when I, the information I get from just like, you know, researching yeah. and yeah. whether it is just, just fascinating different little avenues you land on from like new information. I think that's mm-hmm. why I school so much. And, and I try to continue that in my practice, not just because of being yeah. in school, but to, to be able to like focus in on a subject and sort of really yeah. understand through different point of views Love to just kind of have that like moment in life and do yeah. that again. Yeah. I, 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 I'd recommend it. You know, I love school. I'm like, I'm really happy at this moment right now to be in class and learning stuff. You know, yeah. I'm meeting like some other people who are like, they're like, yeah, I'm in here just to get a PhD so I can get a job. And they're like miserable. I'm like, I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> I don't get it, but sure. I mean, that's, that's the artist in you. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, good luck. Thank you. Yeah, great. Well, I'm going to keep tuning in. Um, it's nice because the last ones, I'm like, these are you like, know them. people. Yeah. yeah. And you and Bobby have such a great rapport. I just really? love the way you talk. Yeah. I'm I'm like you guys crack me up like I'm I'm laughing when I'm, I feel I'm like listening. I feel like Favi is more entertaining <laughs> than me, but <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good, but. I'm I'm very much into it. So thank you so much for providing this type of space and connection. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great to talk with you. I was excited. I was really excited to talk to you. I was excited by your work and yeah. 
we'll keep in touch. Yes, um, yeah. I will. I'll uh, definitely, I'll definitely visit New York. I'm not sure if we'll be in Vegas at the same time, but like I, I like every time in the U.S. I visit New York at least once every six months. You know. Oh, please yeah. do keep in touch, and I'm pretty sure we'll figure out who like all the overlaps because I'm now I'm pretty confident there's got to be a few. It's probably a bunch. Yeah, yeah. So keep in touch. Thanks, thank, Yuan. Have thank a good day. you. Andy. Bye. All right. Ciao. Seeing color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show. And gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.